That's right. You are listening to Windsor's Inside Pulse for the latest news, views, and opinions in our great Windsor and Essex County region. We remind you that the views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the co-hosts and do not necessarily reflect the views of CGM or other media outlets or any political parties. We are recording live right now, Wednesday, January 27th at approximately 5 p.m. Please remember to like our Facebook page and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app. With that being said, my name is Al Teshuba. I am joined remotely with Daniel Ablisser and Dave Sundin and Christine Brooks. All right. Our first topic, we went from American big news last week. Now we're talking about the Canadian news. And uh, first of all, just, just as a just a little quick roundtable, who thinks we're going to be having an election within the next six months? Me, I say yes. Yes. I say yes as well. I think uh, as we see more and more nominations happening, it's an indication everyone's gearing up for it. I'll say no. I say that we're going to go at least till fall, if not spring 2021. Or 2022, okay. I guess. Well, I can tell you this. Locally, we've got Andrew Dowie, Conservative Party, uh, for uh, the provincial. That's Up true. in the air, I think the rumors are Leo again, Chris Lewis, obviously, for Essex, Liardi for PC. Windsor West is uh, wide open on both right now, but I think things are moving in that direction. I know more than that, but I'm just in general. Okay, we right, got a, right. a meeting tonight. That's why I'm going to be cutting out a bit early. Well, I um, think I think federally, certainly the expectation is that if Sandra wants to run again, she gets to she will run again, and and I I think it's pointing in that direction. So I'm I'm not a member of the uh, the, the Liberal Party, but I I don't think that that's a secret. If that's the secret we're talking about. Yeah, I, I think uh, Sanders remained very plugged in since the last election. So Windsor West wise, um, if Sandra is going to run, it's it's hers uh, to have if she wants it. And she's stay plugged in. So I think I think she's interested in running again. Okay, well, as far as the topics, uh, normally you talk about the economy, normally you might talk about different tax policies, or you might talk about different issues that came up. But the number one issue is, and I think this might be true for many governments around the world, is how is the current government handling COVID-19 pandemic? So obviously the opposition parties are gonna criticize and the government in power is gonna talk about all the successes and all the things they did correctly in order to mitigate this pandemic. It is by uh, no means different here in Canada. The House of Commons was away, they're returning after a month long break and it's been anything but restful according to this uh, Globe and Mail uh, article, Canadian Press, and they're talking about the vaccines. Canada's vaccine delays seem to dominate the agenda as Parliament set to resume on Monday. So how much do you think the opposition party are going to be pressuring this issue to make it look as the federal government is either incompetent or uh, delaying or not doing as good as they should? Do you think this is a winning issue to press on or do you think the Canadian people are going to cut some slack? Let's, I want to toss it to Dave as a, a member of the Liberal Party. How do you think that's playing right now? What's the messaging? Yeah, so um, a lot of governments, as we've seen, have benefited from how they handle the the COVID-19 pandemic. Others that don't handle it well have, have suffered accordingly. Um, I, I think as time goes on, though, it seems to, to, to matter a bit less as people get um, 
COVID fatigue. So, right, I don't think Doug Ford has done as done necessarily anything wrong in his handling. I think he's been, you know, very ably handling the the pandemic, other than a couple of ministers um, uh, flying away when they shouldn't have. Uh, but his numbers have been dropping recently because people are just fatigued. Um, they they they're they're not fans of of the, the lockdowns, and so as time goes on, I think how you handle the, the pandemic um, matters a little less, and it might in the long run start hurting. Um, if you're actually following the, the the public health guidelines, like if you look in, in Florida, uh, the Florida governor is completely flouting um, all of the recommendations on COVID-19 and, and things are terrible in Florida, but his numbers are up because he hasn't locked in everyone down. So um, it, it's it, it's a weird mix right now. So I think early on in the pandemic, it mattered a hell of a lot more and it's less so now. Daniel, your thoughts? Well, Christine, I'll let you jump in first and then I'll give my thoughts on where we stand. So Christine? Yes. Well, thank you, Daniel. Um, I, I think really that um, uh, I'm not sure that any government can um, can uh, overcome a pandemic. I think uh, it's not that our governments haven't tried. Uh, I know that some people think that, in fact, um, people, voters will be very, um, very good in terms of uh, understanding their politicians and be and, and will be kind towards them, seeing all the efforts that went into it. I'm not so sure. And I personally think that there are two big reasons why at the federal level, the government will come down, in my opinion, uh, or ought to actually. And one is the vaccination rollout. And the second one is the unbelievable um, debt that has been created and that did not need, and that has not at all been addressed. I'm not saying that printing money was not important, but I believe that in fact it has to be addressed, and it has to be done in a much more measured and uh, temperate way. And also the stifling of small businesses, which is absolutely at the base of our uh, the fabric of our communities, is absolutely shameful. Actually, then for three reasons. I think the federal government will have to come down. And the, on, on the provincial level, I am not sure that this will not affect the provincial government. Historically, federal and provincial governments have been opposite for Ontario. So if we go liberal at the federal level, we go conservative at the provincial level. So by that, by that pattern, then it may be changing as well, but I don't know. All right. So a couple of points. First off, Christine, if you're uh, if, if you're saying that the government is going to be in trouble because of the business lockdowns, you might want to check your conservative talking points, because that's wholly something at the provincial level. The, the feds have really nothing to do with that. Now, turning to this issue of the feds, look, I think that the big issue right now is the vaccine rollout and the Questions about delays that have been in the news really for the past week or so. There's been this issue with, oh, the Pfizer plant in Belgium is retooling their line or something. It's like, what the hell? Like, this is the most important time ever, and now you're retooling your line. Now, I, I think ultimately, and now you guys all said that there will be an election in the, in the spring. My view is if there's an election in the spring, the thing that the election will turn on is how your government did rolling out the vaccine. There's been some problematic news, I think, for the Liberals in the last week. But I, I think that we need to give it some time to uh, to unpack it. I think that ultimately what we'll be looking at is compared to how we're doing compared to the rest of the world. So, you, you know, there was this news 
two months ago or a month ago that Canada had secured more doses of all the vaccines than everybody else in the world. The problem is delivery. So th there's no point in securing, yes, Pfizer will send us a dose of the vaccine at some point, because I'm sure they'll have lots of extra doses in 2023. The question really is, was our procurement done appropriately to ensure that we're getting our fair share as it rolls off the line? And Frank, you know, and while I'm not prepared to conclude that there was a screw up at this point, I think that if it got screwed up and we like, this was not that, uh, putting that line in was not that complicated of a procurement piece. And if we screwed up the procurement such that all that they have to do is deliver the vaccine whenever the hell Pfizer or Moderna or whomever wants and not, in a fair share as a pro rata to our poor population with the rest of the world, then this government, then that's going to kill this government. I can't imagine that they've screwed it up that bad. I think really we have a just general supply issue with Pfizer that everybody other than maybe the US is facing as that vaccine comes out of Belgium. But certainly if, if the Fed screwed it up, the Feds are going to die on this issue. Yeah, so I think it ties in well into our next article, Daniel, which, uh, you know, the local impacts of the the failure to roll out um, the vaccine uh, and to secure enough vaccine to, to roll it out in a timely fashion. Uh, I just want to weigh in before we do that, weigh in quickly, which is that, you know, CBC announced today that uh, Johnson Johnson's uh, vaccine might be uh, very close to being approved. And apparently the federal government is quickly working to secure um, doses of that, and hopefully they've learned some lessons from the Pfizer and Moderna uh, deals to ensure that we actually get the the Johnson and Johnson ones available, which is a, a one shot dose. But in any event, there there is a local impact to um, Pfizer and Moderna um, delaying shipments to Canada and, and focusing on Europe, uh, the European Union and the U.S. instead. Um, and that is that we've had to hit the pause in Ontario on the rollout to long-term care homes. So the, the province um, had a goal of, uh, and did offer the vaccine to 50,000 long-term care residents, uh, all, of, uh, all of them accepted except for 3,000. Um, and then another 17 to 18,000 long-term care residents have yet to be offered their first dose. So my understanding is approximately 47,000 long-term care residents have to, had their first dose at least. Um, 17 to 18,000 are waiting on being offered their first dose. Um, and so now it sounds like uh, there's going to be a delay in when those who receive their first dose uh, get the second dose. So the recommendation is that uh, for the Pfizer vaccine, at least, uh, that be done within 21 days, uh, 21 days after the first dose, that might be extended to 42 days instead. Um, and, and then there'll be delay in the remainder getting um, their actual first and second doses as well. So uh, the, the province's plan of rolling out um, uh, the, the LTC rollout in a very timely fashion has certainly uh, hit some hiccups because of the Moderna and Pfizer um, issues. So uh, your thoughts, um, Christine, you want to weigh in first? Yes. Well, yes, I have uh, several things. I have just uh, picked up a, an article as well. Of course, the um, according to Pfizer, their um, their plant in Purs is being retooled. Uh, I don't understand this at all, this timing. The timing seems awfully bad. Uh, many people in Ontario have already received their first uh, dose and have an, are now waiting for their second. They are even thinking that given the new way of uh, uh, prioritizing, some of the healthcare workers may be getting their second dose only right at the, right at the end, like 42 days after 
uh, they have had their first. That's kind of the limit, uh, the outside limit to really make use fully, uh, full use of that first uh, dose. What is um, uh, something that came to me from a Belgian friend might explain something and this something is very disturbing i am again i don't i haven't seen the, it first hand like from a first source it is through my friend and according to him there seems to have been a uh it has to do with the vials pfizer was using was supplying vials for five doses and very quickly the belgian doctors apparently were able to extract six doses of that of the uh, vaccine from that same vial. They actually said this. And um, this meant that Pfizer, Pfizer found out and Pfizer felt that it was being ch cheated from the, uh, the uh, profit. Um, and so um, this, uh, so the difference was 600,000 bottles uh, uh, less than the government uh, would benefit from this by taking six doses in from from each vial meant for five doses. So I don't know if this is the actual cause of it and why they are retooling, but that it may be a monetary and financial difference that is at the root problem of this. That's what they're telling the Belgium that's right from from a Belgian source. I think as far as Johnson and Johnson coming in, you've got Moderna, I think these other companies are going to step up and fill the market demand as other suppliers maybe are, are lacking or delaying. So I think it's okay. I think they, they have the right formula or the, they've all worked pretty well the same to figure out what the correct uh, uh, vaccine is going to genetically be. And it's just a matter of distribution and who's got the supply. So let's, you know, people want this thing to move on with their lives. Let's get it going. Yeah. I, th I think like, We've just got to be rolling out more, but obviously the feds have to procure and then get it into Canada. And then they've got to get it to the provinces and into the local health units and hospitals and get it into people's arms. And it's all, it's a whole supply chain that's coming from the international to the local level. So if we're backed up at the local level, it looks like the kinks are largely out of the system locally. There was some infighting a few weeks ago, but now it looks like the issue is the supply from the top of the pyramid rather than what's going on uh, locally. So get us, get us our vaccines from the province and the feds and, uh, and, and, and let's keep it moving. But obviously, you know, decisions have to be made in terms of priorities if the vaccine is not coming into us locally from the higher levels. There's also some rumblings that there's at least one um, Canadian vaccine in development um, that if approved, it's already in human trials if approved, they'll have capacity in uh, at least Saskatchewan to, uh, to mass produce what's needed for the Canadian market, but that's still a number of months away. So, um, okay, thanks all for your thoughts on that. Um, thankfully, that's all of our our COVID topics for today. Uh, it's unfortunate we have to keep um, hammering home uh, COVID every uh, show, but it, it, it continues to be uh, obviously a major issue and we, and we can't uh, can't ignore it. So, um, but uh, there's been other big news in Windsor this week. Um, just uh, yesterday it was announced. So on the, the 26th, I believe it was announced. Um, the new CAO, uh, Jason Raynar has been uh, named as a new CAO, uh, an external candidate from uh, most recent posting was Innisfil, where he served as the um, the town solicitor and eventually took on the job as CEO there. 
Um, so he's been hired. He'll be starting April the 6th with our most recent CA CAO, Honorio Colucci, uh, retiring after 37 years with the city of Windsor. Um, so I, I was a bit surprised it was an internal hire. I, I don't know why I just assumed that it would be. It has been for the last number of, of cycles where they've hired a, a CEO. It's been someone local with ties to the community. And it appears this, this individual um, has none. So we'll have to, uh, to wait and see how it all works out. But it was a unanimous decision of city council to, to offer the position to this individual. So um, uh, we'll post some articles about this uh, on our Facebook page. Uh, every, all the news outlets locally have, have uh, reported on it. Um, let's go to, uh, to uh, Christine first, your thoughts. Yes, well, it sounds exciting. I mean, we have uh, somebody from out of town. Uh, this can be an advantage and a disadvantage, but obviously a council was uh, unanimously in favor. Uh, I liked what uh, he said. He, well, he is known to be, according to the article, praised for his innovative approach to public transit and unique developments. We know that transit is a very, is a big priority, especially public tr transit for the uh, council in the last few years. It has been as we are moving moving towards a better public transit and also integrative transit between uh, the county um, and say Amherstburg and, uh, and, and so on with Windsor. So um, uh, Jason Rayner um, said he would tangibly, he wants to tangibly improve the lives of Windsorites and help businesses recover from the pandemic and prosper. All very good and exciting. Um, 23 applications were received from the 100 and retained from the 175 public sector leaders that were targeted by the Boyden executive search. Six candidates interviewed and then he received the, the uh, post. He will be replacing uh, uh, Mr. Colucci who has been a uh, chief ex uh, um, the uh, CAO since uh, April 2016. And uh, he said he, he couldn't be more grateful to those who inspired, mentored, and supported me during my time with the city of Windsor. He was with the city of Windsor for 37 years, and it's quite possible that that will no longer be happening in this present generation. But good luck to uh, Mr. Rayner. I don't know what the criteria is to choose somebody. Obviously, there's going to be a balance between knowing your job in general as a CAO and also knowing the city of Windsor. And, you know, you look at uh, Colucci, he was, um, he was there for 37 years. And, you know, he went from finance, his last job was in finance and he obviously the CAO position was just a natural. I was a little bit surprised by this, by this pick. I thought they would have somebody internal. The fact that they have somebody coming from the outside, I wonder, you know, if there's some politics behind that, if they just wanted to start fresh. I'm curious what the criteria was and who the other candidates were and at what, you know, what was the determining factor? I mean, this is a very big decision. I figured, you know, is council deciding on the final six? Like who's making this final decision? Anybody who knows, I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So ultimately there was a, the way that they presented this a few months ago was that there was a committee of community, leading community members that I think also included the mayor that would shortlist. I think that there were six people that were interviewed and ultimately there were supposed to be sort of two people that would go forth to council and council would make a decision. They haven't said whether or not that actually ultimately happened or if there was a clear single person that was the recommendation, but that's how the process was supposed to work. I think I, I agree with what you're saying, Al and Dave. I, I am somewhat surprised that it is somebody not just not from within the corporation of the city of Windsor, but somebody who is not local and doesn't appear to have local ties. 
Um, it wouldn't have surprised me if we had hired somebody from elsewhere in the county, but I'm surprised that this is a person from Innisfil who I think worked, you know, went to law school at uh, Osgood in Toronto. It's not clear that he has any ties to Windsor. That can be, you know, that can be a, a, a challenge for a couple of reasons. One, you don't have that institutional memory. Um, two, I think that there's always that concern about flight. This person seems to be a riser. He looks to be, you know, young 40s, clearly has worked his way up very quickly. And I think that there's always the concern that, well, that person, you know, who's coming from a town of 33,000 now gets the job as a CAO at a town of 200,000. If he's got those Toronto ties, will he look to uh, bounce back to one of those larger Toronto communities when jobs open up there? So that's a concern. I don't, because this is in camera, we don't know how that was dealt with. Um, I, I think that this person does look like a star. He looks very strong. He presents very well. Um, and, and I think, look, I think that there is some benefit to getting new blood and a new view of things. We've had for the last 15 years, we've sort of had finance people from within the city of Windsor doing the job. I think that there's a benefit to some outside blood and doing things differently. But there's also a challenge in not having that institutional memory and, you know, and I, I think as well, I don't know how you deal with uh, the concern, how long is he going to stick around for if, if he does the five, you know, I think it's a five year term, usually if he does the five year term, and then wants to, uh, you know, go elsewhere at some point, that's fine. But you always run the risk of a quick turnover that you can't quite prepare for um, in, in situations like this, that we probably didn't have with uh, with OC because I don't think that when OC was hired five years ago, there was any concern that he was going to, uh, you know, flee to greener pastures at some point. Yeah, maybe to Italy. Look, at, at the end of the day, uh, you talk about um, the institutional know-how. Uh, I call it the learning curve. Somebody coming in from out of out of the original corporation, the city of Windsor, and just, just to learn what the, the system was, even if you're planning to improve it, I don't know. It, it, I'm really surprised they chose someone that was not, you know, in, in the hierarchy of like the next position, like the assistant or the deputy assistant or someone in a different department. Like when OC got the job as CAO, everybody was like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. He was leading the finance department. He's been around the city of Windsor. He knows the ins and outs. It made total sense. This one here just came out of left field. It's a total shocker. I mean, obviously the decision is made. I, I wish I wish him the best. I wish it, it's great. I wish everything will turn out. Um, but if it doesn't turn out, you make a five-year contract. It's very costly to, to break that. So I'm hoping at the very least we get our money's worth through the five years. And I'm hoping everything works out. And if there's fresh ideas that come in and change it. But usually I like to hear those ideas come from city council. And an administration works for the city council and the elected officials to implement. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I, I think it'll work out. I, I don't think that there's any chance that this guy is going to, well, there's no reason to think that this guy's not going to be strong. He seems like a star. I saw some tweets from the mayor up in Innisville congratulating him, saying, basically, you got yourselves a rock star, Windsor. So I, I, th I think he looks good. I do think that, you know, Al, you raise an, a bit of another point, which is like, we don't know who else applied for this. And there could be when you bring in somebody from external there could be some hurt feelings of other people in the in the corporation who didn't get the job who thought gee i was next in line and so you know i i hope that everybody yeah. can put that behind them and uh, and move on but congratulations yeah, i do trust Dave. i do trust mayor dilkins so if mayor dilkins is on this committee to choose who a cao is and obviously it had a lot of influence i mean i think the mayor should get a lot of weight as to who he wants a cao to be so I mean, if, if he's on the committee choosing, I trust uh, Mayor Dilkins, so 
And I guess, I guess from Dave and my perspective, we, uh, we now have a lawyer in the top job. We've had finance people for the last 15 years. Obviously, lawyers are better, so that's good. So congratulations to the city. It shows if we work hard, we too one day could be CAO, Daniel. Exactly. So <laughs> speak, for, speak for yourself, Dave. I I, either of you got my vote, if I could vote on it. Right. And, you know, one of the ways that Jason will have to learn about what, you know, the, the institutional knowledge is, is to listen to our show, because we know what's gone on in this city for the last 20 years. So we can bring them up to speed very quickly as these issues come about. That's true. Free, free consultation. All right, let's look at the next issue. And I'm happy this one here is a nice local story. Uh, this deals with our, our main auto um, factory. This one here deals with the auto sector. Uh, the city partners with Ford to create safer roads. Now, we know the, the future of the car industry, the future of uh, transportation is happening right before our eyes. So the city of Windsor is the first in Canada to team up with Ford Smart Mobility Canada to access the automaker's safety insights program. The goal of the new partnership is to create safer roads through data-driven insights and decisions. Pilot project will allow Ford Mobility to track selective data from connected Ford vehicles, with car owner's permission. And Cal Coplia uh, from Ford Mobility says the information isn't shared with the city of Windsor in real time. Uh, we have, and his quote is, uh, we have a process for accessing the underlying data safely, stripping it of any information that's personal, and then the city ultimately can ac access the safety insight program. So it's like uh, metadata, it's in general without tying it in specifically. Uh, I think it's great that Windsor's on the pilot project of this. I think, you know, we should be on the cutting edge. Usually when the testing and the studies happen in one location, next thing you know, the manufacturing or the assembly or the experts or the engineers uh, or the, the software programmers end up being close to that proximity anyways. So this is how it starts. And they're also looking, of course, also to do it across the board. And this was an article, I should be fair here, uh, to Christy Lee Varley uh, in AM800. Yeah, so I, I'm glad to see it coming to Windsor as well. Um, you know, we know on this show, and hopefully our listeners know, know as well, that, that University of Windsor is, is well known for its automotive research uh, and its capabilities. So I'm glad to see that this something like this is coming to Windsor. Um, uh, and we continue to be at the forefront of technology. I, I was also um, happy to see that Ford for a number of years now has been um, partnering with BlackBerry, which people have forgotten about, but another great Canadian icon. BlackBerry provides a, a heck of a lot of the software for these these Ford vehicles. Um, and it sounds like some of this this um, newer stuff about creating safer roads also incorporates BlackBerry software. So we're seeing Canadian know-how and, and Canadian technology being incorporated, which I think is good news for the economy as a whole. And, and certainly glad to see that, uh, that Windsor is taking um, the front seat for this. Yeah, so a couple points on this one, I think that this is a cool program. It's run, I guess, out of Ford Ann Arbor, but the idea is to track our traffic patterns, see where our pinch points are. Hopefully we will both improve the flow of traffic, but also help to avoid accidents, pinch points and things like that. So I think that this is good. Some controversy, I guess uh, WECDEV is, uh, is contributing 30,000 bucks to this. Not entirely clear what why they are doing that if this is going to continue to be run out of Ann Arbor. It's not clear that there is an actual job coming to Windsor to do this. So that's a bit controversial. But but I, th I think ultimately, you know, this, this is a good program to use technology to help to move people 
faster, like move people more efficiently and also avoid accidents and create safety. One thing that does jump out at me is, you know, all the people that, you know, bark, bark, bark about vision zero and we need to make things safe for pedestrians and yada, 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 which I agree with. They're dead silent on this. Apparently they take, they have problems with this because part of the component here is to make vehicular traffic move more smoothly. And, and I, I think they've kind of given away the farm. In reality, Vision Zero was never about making things safer. It was simply about how can we screw with the car to slow down cars to make people have to live more in the core and not and make it more difficult to commute by car. And this project actually has the ability to one, make things safer, but also allow traffic to move along more efficiently. And apparently they don't like that. So they're not cheering for this. Um, when it, they've been talking about Vision Zero for all this time about safety. And in reality, I don't think it ever was about safety. It was simply about how can we slow down cars and make people who want to drive to get places their lives more difficult. Christine? Yes, well, I don't understand that because I really think that this is a really good project and uh, very exciting that Windsor is right there, uh, the very first city in Canada to do this. As Drew Dilkin says, he says uh, this will help Windsor become the automotive capital of Canada, well, I would just say it's not simply become, but confirm it as the automotive capital of Canada. And I think it's very important to keep on um, building ties with our um, automotive friends in Detroit and in Ann Arbor, and to be a, a group, especially at a time where um, there are provisions where uh, the government in the states wants to um, to buy local, buy American, and so we have to maintain that 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 this tie, and so that we the, the our Amer our American counterparts don't forget about us and about our our production in the automotive industry, as well as our our being part of these important pilot projects that will make our streets safer. As for the cost that uh, Windsor Essex Economic Developments uh, is, is sharing $30,000. I didn't think that was a whole lot of money um, in order to have very substantial data. And uh, that will, will really help focus where our money should be spent locally to make our streets safer and the flow uh, better. I like that point, Christine. I, you know, uh, about the fact that it's going to hopefully um, rekindle ties between the uh, the U.S. Um, automakers on the other side of the border and, and us here, um, because I think those relationships have been um, certainly frayed and and uh, have faced some strain uh, even during the pandemic, where we can't uh, meet face to face. So it's it's certainly um, a good idea to show that we can still continue to collaborate on things and and hopefully result in in other deals uh, and other um, uh, research going forward that that's uh, both sides of the border. So. Well, with that, with that said, we've had an excellent first half of the show. We're right on time for a change. So we are going to take our break and we'll be back in just a moment. And we're back. You're listening to Windsor's Inside Pulse. This is the second half of today's edition on January 27th. And we've got a story that's been in the paper, I would say, for close to about 20 years in one facet of another. And now it looks like the story is just about over as far as the first saga of it. Uh, Dave, what's it about? So the, uh, the, the story is about the, um, the, the closure, the impending closure of the Studio 4 strip club. Um, which is going to be torn down and redeveloped. That's uh, breaking news this morning. Um, so uh, 
Um, certainly interesting news. It looks like an interesting development is being planned there. The, the details aren't all out, but it appears that the strip club will be replaced with a strip mall in the not too distant future if, uh, if things go as planned. Um, and so certainly interesting development for that intersection, which has long been deemed um, a bit of a blighted intersection for a long time. Um, both the, the north, cor the north corner um, had an old A&W was torn down and sat vacant for years. And then um, uh, people crossing the border, the first thing they saw was Studio 4. And that's been a longstanding uh, issue with, with uh, local tourism boosters. Um, and, and now we've seen that both corners are being redeveloped uh, with the, the north side being done about three, four years ago now. And, and hopefully a facelift coming to the south uh, corner of this. Now, I remember at city council, they were uh, Carolyn Postma, the, the counselor at the time of Ward 2, her and Ron Jones. And she was very concerned about that sign. And she was talking how that sign is, you know, it's, the lady on the sign is like very inappropriately, scantily dressed there. Is that even allowed? And it was a big discussion. Turned out it was allowed. It was challenged. Uh, no one's like, look, strip clubs do not bring extra value to the neighborhood. And it's, you know, for the first thing that comes down for our American friends, I mean, that's the image, you know, normally they should be like tucked away and kind of on the side and discreet. This one was kind of in your face. So, you know, time has come, let's move on. Uh, the entire Huron church has had development. You talk about the A&W used to be there. Now it's the, uh, the lone place Popeye's chicken with a nice drive-through. Uh, I wish we can get that ministry of uh, tourism that was on Huron Church back up and running, like the gateway of Canada. I think that would be something substantial. Of course, we need to get the border open for any of this even to make sense, talking about our American friends. Uh, but that, that soon will come as well. Yeah, so I, yeah, let's, let's develop. What's fascinating to me is that we live in Windsor and the eyes of on Windsor are all over Canada. Time and time again, it's like a British Columbia developer comes in, someone from Alberta, someone from London, someone from Toronto, and they're all eyeing little old Windsor is like been the best kept secret. And for the last three years, everyone's been buying. It's been really, really boom. As a realtor, I could tell you, I, I just don't, see, I have not seen it stop at all. Houses go up, they still get up for sale, top dollar. People are just interested. I've got a tiny listing right now that is, you know, just a house with a, a rental. I'm getting calls nonstop for people just to invest. From big to small, Windsor is it for developers and for investment purposes. So out with the old, in with the new is my saying. Yeah, so, it, you know, it's hard to believe that back in the 80s and 90s, Studio 4 was a huge draw. There were a number of clubs in the city that were a boon for the economy because it brought over tons of American tourists who spent money elsewhere while they were here, not just at these clubs, um, at Tijuana North. And, and, you know, there was certainly um, a lot of cons uh, to being known as Tijuana North, but it certainly brought in the almighty American dollar for a period of time. But then uh, it, it appears that since roughly 9-11, so once 9-11 happened and the American tourists largely dried up, um, it became less and less of a draw to the point where um, we see more and more of these clubs closing down. Uh, certainly not the, the the number that there were available in the 80s and 90s. And, and I think in the long run, that's a, it's a good thing to move away from that and to move to more reputable uh, businesses to draw people over, such as uh, places like the casino or now a draw, um, as opposed to these, these um, what are seen as, as sinful um, establishments. So Daniel, your thoughts. Okay, so I don't quite know what this place is. I don't know what goes on in there. Apparently, Al and Dave, you know much more. You've heard rumors. You've only heard rumors. Yeah. I, I, you, I know no. much more about me about this place, but look, no, correct me if I'm wrong, but the land that's just to the 
south of that, that's the old Huron Lodge land, correct? So this is going to be part of a major redevelopment along Huron Church. So the, the developer has bought the studio for building and parking lot, but that's part of what's going to be, I think, an 8.5 acre parcel that's going to redevelop all that land on Huron Church. And I think that that's really going to be prime real estate um, as that becomes a major thoroughfare and we get some of the trucks off that road. So I, I think that this is a good news development story. Um, and so I, I think that's exciting. Um, and some, some, some excitement on that corner other than the excitement that was uh, being provided at the strip club. So, uh, so Christine, your thoughts, do, do, you have, do you have any memories to share of the uh, Studio Four? Well, I remember it being there. I have to say that I come from a very small country where, um, I mean, that's just, you, you, you see things like that. I mean, we, we live much more closely and densely populated area like in, in Brussels. And uh, I don't, uh, I, I do believe that uh, it has a, a place in our society if that can, if it's, uh, you know, it's probably a, a something other than on the main drag is probably a good thing. I think um, also that in fact, uh, moving and, and moving ahead and, and, and developing the land is exciting. Um, I think it, it, it right now it, it's, uh, it looks down and out and it's a, a lot of very good land on a very good thoroughfare. So for businesses, it will be very good. I also think that um, uh, frankly, we thinking ahead, I mean, hopefully, uh, the trucks won't be going there anymore. And uh, in the near future, we can think of the trucks going and using the, um, uh, the new uh, bridge, uh, the, uh, uh, and, and that, that that will allow people to actually take advantage of it in a much more peaceful manner without having to deal and contend with trucks. So that's, that'll be wonderful. Well, moving from one type of a poll to another type of a poll, there was a, uh, a discussion in Southwood uh, at one of the uh, committees at City Council regarding replacing the streetlights in Southwood Lakes. Now, the reason that this is an issue is that if you have ever been in Southwood Lakes, you know that they don't have the old tall concrete um, light poles. They've got the uh, the the special smaller uh, more. They've got the decorative street pole uh, street light poles. The challenge with the decorative street light poles is, I guess, threefold. One, they they're shorter. They give off less light, so you need more of them. Two, they last less time. They failed quicker um, because they're pretty. They're not just um, they're not just, you know, a big hunk of cement. And three is that they, uh, they cost more to replace. So they're about 8,000 bucks to replace each rather than $4,000 to replace for a normal street pole. So a bunch of them have uh, failed in Southwood Lakes. And the issue that has come forward is how do you pay for the replacement? Um, and, and so normally when you have an upgrade to, uh, to, to uh, infrastructure around the city, the residents pay the first time for the upgrade. So if you wanna put in new streetlights, the residents would pay, but then the city would pay from the tax base to replace things like that. If you wanted to put in new curbs or gutters, things like that, the, uh, the residents would pay at first instance if it wasn't put in by the developer, but then any replacement would be paid by the city. But so there's this issue with the Southwood Lakes street light poles because of the issues that we raised and the costs of that, whether or not the residents should have to pay for this replacement 
or whether it should come out of just the regular tax base. And it's not just an issue in Southwood Lakes where there's a whole bunch of these poles, but apparently there's there's a number of locations throughout the city that has these uh, decorative street poles. I think of Huntington Avenue in, uh, in, in South Windsor, they've got some nice ones. Certainly I know out in uh, Riverside, there, there's a bunch of subdivisions that have these nice, um, these nice decorative poles. So that's the issue. Um, Councillor Francis, who represents the ward, wanted the city to pay for the replacement. There was some pushback from other councillors saying, why should the city have to pay for this? The residents should pay for it if they want the, uh, the more decorative polls. So I'll share my thoughts in a bit. I've set this now up. Dave, what are your thoughts on this? Residents pay, city pays. How do you deal with this issue? I think it's always going to be contentious until there's a, a universal citywide policy because, you know, a lot a lot of the naysayers on social media um, were very upset because this is, you know, South Windsor is is, is perceived as being and it certainly is a wealthier area, uh, higher house prices um, who end up paying, you know, uh, more in taxes because it's based on the value of the property you live in. Um, but but individual taking issue with the fact that, um, you know, this isn't going on across the city. Um, and, and, but meanwhile, you're right, it is happening elsewhere. I think of these people who were, who were upset about it, if it was happening in Walkerville or South Walkerville along Victoria Avenue, um, they'd be all for it saying, oh yeah, that, that's a, you know, a heritage area and we need to, to preserve that. But because it's happening in South Windsor, there's a lot of complaints about it. I don't want to see the city wasting money on this. I, I would be advocating for a, a, a universal policy, which is basically the cost of this get added onto the local tax bills. If it's an improvement above and beyond what the city would ordinarily pay for. Um, you know, if you look at these lights, uh, you know, we'll, we'll post the um, the news stories on, on the Facebook page. But when you look at these lights, you, you see that a lot of light is wasted because it's it's a it's a globe. It's a glass globe. So a lot of light just shines upwards as opposed to being pointed downwards, which happens with the LED lights. So you need more of them um, in order to light the area. So there's there's waste all around, right? So you're you're paying for something that costs more, that fails in half the time, and you need two for for every one you would need if it was a standard concrete pole. So I think it's a bad idea for the city to um, be picking and choosing neighborhoods. And I think the easiest way is you have a universal citywide policy that says um, we'll replace the standard cost of what we would replace anywhere. Uh, anything above and beyond that gets added on to the uh, the properties who are being um, you know improved by this because it, it certainly adds value to those those properties when they're sold the fact that they have these these decorative lights i think helps with with value so and i think but i, I think that that um councillor castante was the one who took the reasonable approach was was table of motion to replace the ones that um are are in failure mode that need to be replaced immediately replacing them and pushing this issue down the road to be studied more by administration and yeah and so ultimately what the committee voted on was that they would come back with a policy for how to deal with this both for new subdivisions and for existing uh, subdivisions uh, going going forward. And that was ultimately sort of the third motion of the day that was put forth by uh, Councillor Castante after Councillor Francis failed in a motion to say replace them and Councillor McKenzie withdrew a motion saying, no, don't, don't, don't replace them, replace them with the, uh, the cement pole. So I'll give my thoughts, but Christine, uh, Christine, any thoughts on this? Well, uh, I, I'm a little bit uh, ambivalent about it all. I, I don't believe every neighborhood needs to look the same. I think um, wards uh, like to have their own, uh, and they do have their own kind of feeling and, uh, and 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 just mood, you know, according to their architecture and 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 their their history and so on. At the same time, inordinate expenditure is really not warranted for one ward more than for another. So it it makes it quite complex. Now, if you're 
So my idea would be that, in fact, uh, I don't know if every ward has a, a BIA, but I think there should be a kind of average price that, uh, you know, or range that the council would pay. And then beyond that, it would have to be maybe the, the BIAs in those wards would be, uh, you know, willing to defray the rest of the cost because they do bring in um, they're usually put on 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 non in this case it is a residential area but it it uh, it often is linked to business areas for example sandwich street or ottawa street or erie street etc so it is pretty it makes a bit of variety it allows for decoration at different times of the year a little bit different between the different neighborhoods but at the same time if it's it's not ecological non-environmentally friendly, not efficient, and uh, costs a lot of money, it's, it's not in, in the best interest of the public. So here's how I would deal with the issue on a going forward basis, and we'll talk about the past maybe later, but I think that the factor that we have to consider is, does that added uh, amenity add to the value of the properties? And if the value of the properties goes up, then the residents are paying for it in added taxes. So in my view, when, the, when a developer wants to put in an upgrade like this, the developer should be free to do that, provided that the city engineer provides an opinion that the added value from this amenity will cover itself in, in, in increased taxes going forward as an opinion. Now, if the, if the city engineer can't provide that opinion because these things are gonna to fail too quickly and they're simply not going to increase the tax base enough to pay for themselves, then, then I think that something like a homeowner's association should be required or a reserve or an annuity to pay for the replacement. So that's how I would deal with it going forward. Um, in the past, I think I kind of looked to the same principle. I guess my question is for Southwood Lakes, not simply these residents are paying a lot of money, but does the amenity on the right of way being these lights add enough to the neighborhood such that people are paying more to be there and that these things have paid for themselves over in the past 20 years. If they have, then I think that the residents have paid for it. If they haven't, then I guess maybe the city should fund the base and if the residents want something more, the residents have to step up and figure out a way to pay for it on an ongoing basis. Dave? Yeah, so I remain of the opinion that that the key thing is a universal policy across the board with they say later we're just applying the policy. But but I do note that, you know, I I um I, I live in East Windsor. Um, uh, South Windsor uh, is, is infamous for for not having a heck of a lot of sidewalks, which is a huge spice of the city, right? So, so you know, every neighborhood has different amenities that the city is supplying. Um, yes, you know, when subdivisions are built, that cost is is passed on to the developer, so the developer pays for it initially. But eventually, the city needs to come through and replace certain things, including sidewalks and curbs, as you mentioned earlier, Daniel. And and so there, there's no cost replacing sidewalks in South Windsor because they're simply not there. Um, for the most part, um, similar to East Windsor, where there's, you know, there's not a lot of, um, uh, sidewalks in Fountain Blue where I live. It's, uh, the, the people there didn't want them. Um, so it's a bit dangerous to go for walks, but, but there's really a, a dearth of sidewalks. So, um, you know, but I'm, uh, but meanwhile, my taxes are paying for sidewalks to make other neighborhoods livable. And it's just, it's, it's the unfortunate reality of, of being part of a, a big city We're we're going to pay more here for some things, but get different benefits elsewhere that everyone else is paying for as well. So, um, but, but once there's a universal policy in place, it just makes it more 
difficult for anyone to to uh, complain about this. Daniel? Yeah, I think that we do need the universal policy. I think one of the things that you raised there with sidewalks or things like curbs and gutters actually supports Councillor Francis's position as opposed to Councillor McKenzie's position, because if we look at sidewalks as something that might have started with a local improvement, then you know, or something that a developer put in as an addition beyond the, the base standard, then technically when those sidewalks fail, it should be on the residents to replace them if, if that's over and above the base. So if Councillor McKenzie's position is, gee, these lights are unnecessary and the city shouldn't have to pay to replace them, technically then any sidewalks that came in as a local improvement would be in the same position, unless you somehow say, well, sidewalks are now the new curbs and gutters are now the new base standard but these are above the base standard but that's not really the case because you don't have to have sidewalks so oh, oh my gosh we do need sidewalks i would i would absolutely say that going forward we need to have sidewalks if we want our and our our if we want people to walk and be yeah, all Christine, all, I agree. I'm not disputing whether or not we need sidewalks. I'm saying that the standard of a sidewalk right now is that of a local improvement. So the question is, if you had to pay for it as a local improvement now, 30 years from now, do you have to pay for it again? Or does it become part of the base? And I think that what we've done on things like sidewalks is it becomes part of the base. And so then the question is, why didn't these, why didn't, don't these streetlights become part of the base? In, in any event, we've, uh, we, we, we beat, we, we beat that to death with a poll. So, uh, so Christine, why don't you take us into our next story? Yes. Uh, well, this story is a very, well, I, I was blown away by it. So the, the, um, the title of this, uh, of the Windsor Stars article is not black enough historic black church told in being denied federal funding. This is an article by Julie Kotsis in the Windsor Star. And basically it is what the title says. Uh, a, the church in question, mem are, uh, this is the members of a historic Black Windsor church, they're speaking out in particular, uh, the church clerk, Nancy Allen, uh, they were rejected the, on account of their ethnicity um, the, for not being, they were told they were not Black enough to receive the grant because it was uh, for a Black-led organization, and they were extremely disheartened by, by this. Now, this is, Alan said that they sent a 16-page application for the Supporting Black Canadian Communities Initiative on behalf of the Ontario Chapel British Methodist Episcopalian Church, which is on University Avenue East. And this church is, um, was part of the Underground Railroad, and um, it was also a safe house used by escaped African-American slaves who fled to Canada. The grant request was to cover about $98,000 in improvements uh, in order for the uh, uh, heating and cooling system to be renovated and, and, and uh, run more efficiently, and also to, um, to renovate their outdated kitchen. Now, um, apparently, uh, they were told that, in fact, it lacked Black governments and Black leadership. According, this was the criteria they failed to meet, according to the letter. Um, it's very disturbing, and, and I just want to say that, um, and I'll let you uh, do some of the commenting, both you, uh, Dave, and uh, Daniel. 
Um, what I would say is that this is maybe a problem of the way we are giving monies in this country. Uh, anything that leads to uh, terrible statements like this, and I'm glad Brian Massey is, is getting involved and challenging the way the letters and already um, and so on. But it is absolutely, it may be that it should have been uh, offered in terms of historic, uh, for the historic building, rather than linking it to ethnicity, which leads to terrible, terrible results like this one. Yeah, I, I was um, impressed when I read the the article by the fact that it sounds like the, uh, the, 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 the church submitting the application really hammered home um, their ties to the Underground Railroad um, and, and their origins and, and really emphasize the fact that, that you know, um, they were one of the earliest Black institutions in, in Canada um, and really hammer that home. And yet somehow uh, they were deemed not Black enough. Um, I, I noticed that um, MP Massey is certainly the, the media face of this, um, but uh, Erek announced uh, yesterday that he had a conversation with um, Minister Hussein about this, who is the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. Um, so I guess he's uh, tasked with uh, overseeing this, uh, this grant program. Uh, he had a conversation with him um, about this, this denial and I, I think it's being reviewed. So uh, hopefully we can check back with Eric to see what comes of that, uh, that process and whether or not uh, there's some sort of backtracking by the government to, to fund this organization uh, to approve their, their grant application. Um, and Eric also announced that this year, there was a total of 327,000 in grants provided to um, five Black-led organiza organizations in Windsor-Essex. So Windsor-Essex still did receive funding from this uh, $10 million um, national envelope of funding, um, but it, it certainly is troubling that this institution was was missed and, and deemed not black enough, and and hopefully that injustice is quickly um, uh, recanted on by the government. Daniel, yeah, I mean, I think that clearly the ministry that was running this program butchered it, and the minister responsible basically said that he described the letter that this church received and that a number of other unsuccessful applicants received as completely unacceptable. So. I mean, I think that that tells you that the, uh, the, the ministry screwed this up. But I think that the, the point that Christine raises is a good one. How does this get screwed up? It gets screwed up by trying to create a program that really gets into this identity politics too much. So you want to focus on history. That's fantastic. Celebrate your history. But as soon as you wade into this territory of the identity politics and somebody creates a standard as to whether you're black enough, and this is a black church. I mean, it's ridiculous. You, you walk into this minefield. So, you know, you know what? Stop doing identity politics and you stop creating these messes. Yep. I think it's a, that's a universal agreement on this panel. Um, all right. So anyone else want to, uh, to weigh in on this topic any further? Seeing none, let's move on to our, our final article, which is also, um, you know, somewhat recently, this, this next article has been tied to, 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 uh, to race issues. So the University of Windsor has been getting, um, unfortunately, a lot of bad press recently about their handling of, of racial issues on campus. Uh, we regularly see McLean's Magazine um, leaving University of Windsor uh, dead last or close to dead last and it's ranking Canadian universities. And so I was very happy to see that Forbes magazine, a different magazine, has done a survey on the top um, employers in Canada, and uh, the University of Windsor was found to be uh, 31st out of the top 300. 
um, in, in uh, employers that have more than 500 employees. And that was based on a, uh, a number of things, including the fact that the, the Forbes survey found that uh, the university um, was committed to creating a positive, rewarding and healthy work environment, uh, the programs that are offered to employees. Um, and so uh, it's certainly encouraging to see that the University of Windsor at least is treating, is deemed to be treating by Forbes magazine, treating its employees very well. Um, and getting some good press for the university for a change. Um, so so that, that's great to hear. Uh, Daniel, you want to weigh in this first? Yeah, congratulations to the University of Windsor. I, I think that this is not a surprise, but it certainly counters some of the rhetoric we've been seeing in the news from certain people who are upset about whatever they want to be upset about. But you know, on the whole, the University of Windsor has been recognized as a top employer in Canada and the top employer locally. So, you know, we covered this issue two weeks ago with somebody in a department complaining about how, you know, how miserable things were for them. Well, I don't think on the whole things are all that miserable. So congratulations to the University of Windsor. Um, and, uh, and it's nice to see a good news story coming out of there rather than just the, uh, you know, the the vocal minority of people who want to uh, throw mud all the time. Christine? Yes, well, my experience with the University of Windsor uh, dates back to when I was a child as uh, my family, I had various family members who worked at the university. And I, I always thought that it was a very progressive place. That doesn't mean that it, being a human institution, it will make mistakes and there are mistakes and, and, and gross mistakes that happen. Uh, in, in institutions that are just by virtue of humanity. But uh, I, I always uh, thought that it was a very progressive place and that it was very kind to its uh, uh, people working there. And it has uh, also um, uh, grown with time. And so I'm very happy to see in this article that it has been recognized and it's really at the top, right at the top of its uh, heat there. It's really out of 500. It's, uh, it did very, very, it plays very well. And it doesn't really surprise me at all. I, I think it's a wonderful place um, in, 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 in all kinds of ways. No, and, and with 3,500 full and uh, part-time employees, it's, it's uh, if not our biggest, one of our, our largest employers locally, good paying jobs. And it sounds like based on the survey that the, the, the bulk of those 3,500 employees are, are very happy with the programs and the pay that's in place there and, and, and all the rest. So, so glad to hear that there's a happy and healthy workforce at the, uh, the University of Windsor. And if, you're, so, and if you're working at the University of Windsor and you don't like your job, you're free to quit. I'll take your job in a heartbeat. So uh so, uh, so, so, so that's that. And uh, with that said, looks like we are under an hour tonight. Well, we, uh, Al had to leave us a couple of stories ago, but we had a good chat with everybody. And thank you all for uh, once again, listening to another great edition of Windsor's Inside Pulse. A reminder to pound that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app and like us on Facebook for show updates and bonus episodes. I had a bonus interview again with Sarah Mushtak over the weekend regarding her most recent Windsor Star article. Invite you to listen to that, comment on it on uh, Facebook. Until next time, have a great week. Stay safe, everyone, and we will see you next time. Take care for now.